(laughs) The weather isn't the only thing hot in Vegas this week. You heard it right here, folks. For the company that shall not be named, is this a canary in the coal mine? It seems like you're coming in hot this morning. Did not use the Bard or the ChatGPT, but use the Google. Whatever, man. You love it. People are not smart. I'm going to go ahead and say I agree to disagree. (laughs) And I don't know how to say this without sounding like a horrible, horrible human being. Well, I don't envy anybody meeting with you today. (laughs) No, I already showered. That's why I got up early and showered. Hey guys, welcome back to Results Junkies podcast. Paul has successfully achieved his registration for the Dopey at uh, at Disney, and we will uh, we'll just leave the Dopey right there for this morning. As Paul <laughs> says, I'm coming in a little bit hot today. We're going to be talking about Cap One, doing a couple interesting things that may or may not be related. That will uh, that may be a canary in the coal mine of uh, of what's to come. We're uh, we're talking about uh, a acquisition by JP Morgan that we discussed uh, probably 10 or 12 weeks ago and some interesting updates there on JP Morgan's lack of due diligence in an incredibly large lawsuit. And uh, we're looking at Instacart's internal valuation. And Paul has some pretty strong thoughts on that. Mr. Singh, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I uh, I don't even know what to say. We It's been a busy week. But yes, I was able to have the opportunity to part with an awful lot of money to have the also opportunity, I guess, to run a lot of miles at Disney, which is crazy. But here's what I'll tell you. I'm four days post-registration and now I'm in the Facebook group for, you know, run Disney or whatever. (laughs) And I don't know how to say this without sounding like a horrible, horrible human being. But every post that I see in that Facebook group makes me think that Disney works hard to earn every penny because, oh my goodness, people are not smart. Like, Uh, yes. I don't know what to say without getting in trouble here, but I think you know what I mean. Like the lowest common denominator of people that seem to give Disney money is extremely low. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I yeah. So I, so two things on 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 this. First off, I belong to a, a Facebook group, and I don't I don't spend a ton of time on Facebook groups, but this one is is absolutely one of my favorites, and it has no relation to anything that we'll ever discuss on this show. But for people looking to see the most interesting that humanity has to offer, uh, Disney Burn Book is a Facebook group of folks who, uh, <laughs> let's just say that we that we pass commentary on the exact people that you're talking about. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Well, now I feel better that I said village. something. Yeah, I, I'm glad I said something because now like at happy hour every night, uh, Dana, for the last three nights anyways, Dana and I will be like, okay, let's take turns reading these posts in this run Disney group <laughs> in the voice that we think this person has. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I am curious. So what did it cost you to register for all of them? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing not because it's funny, but because I'm an idiot for paying this. So it was... Yes. Uh, $660, I think, for the dopey run. But being Disney, for whatever reason, whoever built that checkout page said that they want to explicitly tell you that the payment processing fee has to be paid on top of that. So there was an additional 6% that they <laughs> like they couldn't just because say please yeah, they they couldn't just say please give us $682 or whatever it was. They were like, no, 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 no. You're gonna pay this much money, plus you're also gonna pay six percent. <laughs> For that. And it's like, for a company that thinks through everything, 
I got to believe that there's some reason somebody somewhere was like, you know what? We're just going to stick it to them real good. Let's just throw on another 6%. <laughs> <laughs> like, like this checkout page doesn't need to be magical. Everything else can be, but not this page. <laughs> that's uh, That is a little bit bizarre because Disney can charge whatever it wants. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. It, it is yeah, I mean, all, all joking aside though, like Disney... I mean, again, all joking aside, like the thing about Disney that I will give them a lot of credit for that I think a lot about is, is Disney is sort of this master class of brand for better or for sure. worse, the brand, you either love the brand or you hate the brand and not by a little bit, by a lot. Like there's nobody in the middle that ever says, I don't care. You either say, I don't, I hate it because they do X or <laughs> I love it because of Y. And that is, I think what every company should aspire to be. You know, and, and it's something we talk about internally at the, you know, the company that shall not be named is like, you know, the goal is to be loved or hated, not, not, not anything in between. <laughs> so. Someday we're going to know the company of, uh, of to be loved or hated. That day is not today. Uh, that's true. But we are going to, we are going to chat a little bit about a company that is both loved and hated in, uh, in, in cap one and so there were two things here that we were talking about with cap one and it's unclear uh, you know just off the bat if these are related and so it's 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 definitely definitely possible but the first one and, and cap one's not the first big company to do this in fact they're not the first big one this week because jp morgan announced as well that they're requiring people to come back into the office three days a week and, and you and i have talked about this a number of times over the past couple of years as companies have started to do this but but bit one here is that cap one is requiring people to come in to the office three days a week. And then the second bit is from a guy that you followed on Twitter for a while. You've sent me his tweets in the past. And he's talking about how uh, from the car industry, the Capital One is pulling inventory lines of credit for car dealerships, essentially the lifeblood of their ability to carry inventory. And these two things may or may not be related, right, Paul? They may not be related. And, and you know, you and I both don't have any insider info, but but the timing of it is all suspect to, to happen at the same time, and because they're they're also both not minor things. So no. Capital One, I would argue, is probably one of the more startupy kind of credit card providers. They're headquartered in here in Northern Virginia. I think they have a secondary large, almost like a secondary HQ down in Richmond, Virginia. And I I actually have a lot of friends that that have worked there or that do work there. And so anyway. I think the timing is suspect because, for example, Northern Virginia in general has been very, I would say, insulated to this return to work uh, trend. Sure. But for that message to come out to say, hey, everybody's got to come home three days a week, that that's okay. That's, uh, that's eye raising, but okay. But then to start to see on the other side of it, lots of substantiated rumors that the inventory lines of credit are getting pulled across the auto industry that's where, you know, as you as you put it, the, that's where the proverbial canary in the coal mine possibility comes from, where it's like Cap One could be making sort of a, a subtle statement on what they how they're feeling about the future. Because these larger companies, when they talk about bringing these staff back, I don't think they're tone deaf. I think that it's sort of done as a way to gently encourage people that are not excited by that return to work to start looking elsewhere. So in other words, it's like the first step towards if, if you if you think you're going to have to do a reduction in force at some point, it seems like one of the recurring playbook steps that everybody takes is a return to office announcement a couple months prior to that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and there are 
there are rumors out there that Capital One's book, um, you know, their loan portfolio, stuff like that is is in potentially worse shape than some of the other big banks. And Cap One, I don't know if they're a GSIB bank, a globally significant bank, as you and I talked about last week, but uh, but they certainly are very integral to the U.S. banking system and 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 do provide some pretty important lines of credit. The, this car dealership one is one, but there are a couple of other industries are in that 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 they specialize in. In that industry, and the the inability for folks in those industries to get capital would would absolutely slow the wheels down significantly on economic growth. So, so potential link here is is this return to office to your point an easier way to uh, to push through a reduction in force? And are these positions that they could potentially be looking to eliminate and and maybe they could cut some of the low performers without having to offer, you know, the same packages that they would if they were laying them off? Yeah, I mean, well, Capital One is not a GSIB. The last time I looked at the list a few weeks ago was anyway. It, it, it okay. I, I believe yeah, I it is not a was, yeah. GSIB, yeah. and and I'm I'm way above my pay grade here. But Capital One's sort of bread and butter, if you will, is not like prime credit targets, right? right? It's 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 subprime and things like that, so, which is not like I'm not trying to like put anybody down. I'm just saying like they bank a very different customer than J.P. Morgan. Yeah, correct, and and so. The, the, I know people don't sign on to this podcast for you know insights into the economy, but the reason I think this is interesting is, is because it further it affects much more than what we realize. Like for example, <laughs> at our own company, we were talking about uh, one of the moves that a competitor is making right now, and we are bootstrapped and profitable, all that stuff. This other company is taking some interesting moves that you and I can see through. We can see it's clearly the venture capital private equity playbook of deep discounting, being upside down on customers as a land grab, that sort of thing. And the reason why this topic is interesting to me is it's like if you are venture backed or you want to be venture backed, you got to be really careful right now because you you have to consciously take a bet on what you think the next year or two looks like, right? You know, I've I've commonly like I've commonly talked about this idea of what I call the venture treadmill. Once yep. you step on that treadmill, there's no getting off. You know, you're not gonna you can't go to the investor and be like, hey man, thank you. Uh, I, I decided I want to bootstrap now. You, you can't go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the reason why this is important though is is if you're already on that treadmill or you want to get on that treadmill, whether you like it or not, you need to make a a, a bet on what you think the future looks like. Because if you step on that treadmill and you say you're going to hit a certain set of targets over the next 12 or 18 months, if you're right and you hit those targets and the macro market doesn't get any worse, you might be able to raise more money to kind of keep the treadmill going. But if you don't hit the targets, you fall off the treadmill. And if the macro market goes the opposite way, like like things get harder, VCs run out of cash, LPs get tighter, that sort of stuff. Well, it doesn't really matter how good you perform because you also could get washed out. So it's a really dangerous game. And I think that it's worth watching what the Capital Ones are doing. Again, because we're all operating on the same limited subset of data here, right? And, and so you got to make a bet. Like if you're bootstrapped, you're, you're generally good. If you're not, if you're not bootstrapped and you are willfully avoiding looking at what's happening in the macro market, you're taking an awfully lot more risk than you need to. And that's not a good idea in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, your your employees need to know that you're taking that bet too. So I think when you talk about, and I think the other thing I would add, I would agree with everything you said. I think the other thing that I would just draw, you know, the line between, because I think you you said both these things, but just to connect it that, you know, with Cap One going after a different customer 
than say um, you know J.P. Morgan Chase. And subprime might not be the exact right term, but you know you and I are thinking about this directionally the same way. These are these are not the best of the best in terms of credit risk, and so interest rates should be higher um, on these on these loans that we're talking about um, in the Cap One portfolios, so like inventory for car dealerships, used cars, stuff like that. Those should be higher, and they're likely not fixed rates. They're likely tied to prime or some other rate. And so they've likely gone up in interest rate percentage, and they've also likely gone up in default percentage. And so, correct. You know, again, as we talk about these wheels turning, that also likely means that they're less likely to make the next loan. And so then you start to get into questions of, you know, what that if, you know, let's just say for the company that shall not be named, let's just say that the industry that you supported was not the one that you do, but it was the car dealerships and used cars were, let's say you were able to, to monetize each used car sale in the U.S. for dealers that you represented. Well, I mean, this is going to significantly hamper your business. Yes, absolutely. And to say it a different way, it's not about cap one having subprime versus prime. It, the, I think the the less awkward and maybe more relevant way to say it is, is I would bet you that the people that bank with Cap One, the people that carry debt with Cap One, like the consumers, I would bet you are a wide swath of the consumers that typically B2C companies target. And they are typically the workforce base of any B2B company that you know you might be, like if you're a B2B company, I would bet you that Cap One's target client, if you will, is the workforce base of your business customer. And so I guess to say it a different way, it's like, hey, if Cap One doesn't think that those consumers can make their payments, then that's that should be concerning. And if Cap One thinks that, you know, a particularly car dealers, you know, shouldn't be financed on the inventory, that's interesting. And again, like, I know this sounds so broad, but I'm, I used to be a real big car guy, you know, uh, now I got 99 kids, I guess. But I think the interesting <laughs> thing about the car dealership industry to me in general is that this country has a lot of consumerism in the auto industry, right? Like people, like now you have 84 month loans on cars. Back when you and I were at CarMax, like 60 months, like, oh man, you're doing 60 months. That's crazy. You know, but, but now like, you know, I was just talking to like uh, one of the guys in our neighborhood, you know, we live in a normal average neighborhood and like this de- dude comes home with like this awesome Escalade or whatever. He's like, yeah, it's 84 months. It's so cool. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I didn't say that, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. 84 months is absolutely the new longest car yeah. loan you can get. And it's like, holy cow. I mean, I mean, <laughs> it's crazy, but you should be nervous about this as a, as a business yeah. owner, you know, and, and I don't know what the technical term for this is, but I just saw this week that, uh, I can't remember if it's HUD or who has the authority to do this, but some government agency basically approved 40-year mortgages now. Oh, wow. I'll find the, uh, the, the, the article for you. But like for me as an investor, this is a little alarming because, you know, again, you know, if, if the consumer base can't afford day-to-day living and they're having to extend their own like debt load, that's concerning. And if B2B companies can't provide raises and stuff like that or, or can't make ends meet, they're going to have to let these people go. So as an investor, this whole macro thing is really alarming. But if you're running a business, particularly that either targets consumers to pay you as a customer or targets businesses that can't afford to keep their employees, this this whole thing is alarming. It's it's uh it's it's worth just kind of keeping an eye on. And I know I'm probably not articulating that too well, but ho- ho- hopefully people are following following along and connecting the dots here a little bit. Yeah, and I think I don't I don't want to sound 
Pollyanna-ish, but there are a lot of bits and pieces here that remind me of 2007, 2008 that don't necessarily mean that we're bleeding into some sort of an economic catastrophe. But, you know, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. These these things seem similar to other things that we saw back then that maybe didn't seem like they were flashing red signals back then. Yeah. I, and that's just it, right? It's like, I like the way you said that. Like, we, we don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. And, and I don't think people listen to the podcast for doom and gloom, right? But I, I made this statement a couple months ago on the podcast, and I think I said it all the time on the tech tour. It's like, who do you trust more? yourself or your employer you know do you trust yourself more or do you trust random things happening across the economy i hope the answer is that you trust yourself more than all right. of this other stuff and if that's true you've got to have one eye out on the horizon you know and and i think that uh you'd be foolish not to but yeah like if if we're making bets here by the way i think things aren't going to get better for at least another year or two and i kind of joked about this in last week's episode it seems like 2020 had a black swan, 21 had a black swan, 22 had a black swan, 23, we're, yeah. we're three months, four months into it, we already had a black swan. Who would have thought SVB would have had this problem? Right. But then you start to look at what Cap One's doing. You start to think about like commercial real estate vacancy rates, 20, 30, in some cases, 40%, depending on the geography. Who do you think is holding the paper on all that? It's not high net worth individuals. Right. It's these massive banks. And I would argue, I don't, I would bet that the commercial outstanding debt is much higher than the, than the housing, you know, personal debt of 2008. So again, not trying to sound the alarm, but I think prudent founders and employees should at least be aware of what's happening. You can't claim that you didn't know things weren't looking pretty. <laughs> well, yeah. And with commercial real estate, I think you you have a, a very different sort of pear-shaped problem than when we had the housing crisis and that even though the housing crisis was was bad, uh, I think it was understood that the price of housing would normalize at some point where people with money in the bank would be willing to buy houses because money still existed um, and that the subset of people willing to buy a house is much larger than the subset of people willing to buy a 40-story office building. And if the return to, to the office isn't as robust as as maybe these folks hope, it's very hard to repurpose those buildings. It's not like you can, you know, throw a Costco in on floors, you know, 11 through 17, although I'd love that. You know, you can't can't put up some apartment units on those floors. Uh, you can't cut the building in half. We've seen uh, typical retail malls struggle, but be able to find some success in repurposing anchors and some of the spaces in those large malls. But this is a much different beast and will have, you know, significant ramifications. We talked a bit, um, you know, I'll pull the episode up and put it in the show notes for people to reference if they want to hear the full story. But about 10 or 12 weeks ago, we talked about a startup founder um, who was being accused by JP Morgan of a pretty massive fraud. And at that point, we said we didn't have a whole lot of insight into, you know, wh who was right and who was wrong. Um, we have some more insight now. And um, it, it, again, we're, I think this is still an alleged crime because at this point, the individual, uh, the, the founder of this uh, startup called Frank, which was a finance-oriented startup, has been uh, arrested and arraigned by the U.S. District Attorney in New York as part of what they are labeling a $175 million uh, fraud. And that was the purchase price of the company. But the founder was 
was a, a fairly large line on the cap table. And so they, they profited pretty massively from this. And, and so this does seem to have taken the next step. This is beyond JP Morgan suing this founder uh, from a civil standpoint and moved into a, a criminal matter, um, which, which carries with it a lot more severity. And yet one of the very first things you said when we talked about this in pre-show this morning was, and I'll paraphrase, what the F was JP Morgan doing on due diligence? <laughs> Yeah, I don't mean to be smiling when I talk about this just because, and it's not like, I I feel bad because I don't want to be cruel, but I'm smiling because it's like, how did this happen? The allegation is, is that the founder and I guess, well, it's the founder plus at least one other employee at Frank created not a few fake accounts, but like in theory, according to the complaint, like millions of fake accounts and then use that to show JP Morgan that they were buying a uh, massive community of students and stuff like that. And, and so JP Morgan apparently thought that was worth $175 million and, and made the deal happen. But like now all of a sudden it's all this finger pointing and, you know, I'll be the first to say, first of all, you should not cook your books or make things up. Absolutely. You should not do that. The founder should not have done that if that's true. On the other hand, what in the world, <laughs> how, how did J.P. Morgan get, like, get this deal through without any diligence? I mean, I, at least what I've seen at, at these larger deal sizes is that you know, they will often ask for that demographic data early on. They may even ask for the ability to co-market for the first couple of weeks just to mm-hmm. make sure those emails bounce. Like, I, it just... This whole thing, it's getting portrayed as massive fraud, one-sided, and J.P. Morgan got taken advantage of. But come on, you can't be a, a, effectively a G-sib <laughs> like, like J.P. Morgan and claim, you know, all I'm saying is there's got to be some negligence here on the other side too. And so, not again, not that people sign into this for like, you know, the latest juicy gossip rag or stuff here. That's not what we're trying to be. But I think from a tactical standpoint, I'll tell you, like I was telling you in the pre-show, like, you know, even with our company now, just this week, I've started to call a couple potential partners that I think that we may be able to make a case for acquiring uh, over the next couple months or years. But before we even open that conversation, I actually just want to test partnerships you know, where we might actually share a significant amount of revenue with them just to see if they can follow through, but also because it'll give us a, a look at their internals. It essentially is due diligence without the letter of intent. Yeah. And it's definitely due diligence without the, you know, term sheet. And so I think for founders thinking that way as well, it's it's like, you know, if you, well, let me say this a different way. I don't know if you would agree with me on this, but like, whenever I'm talking to founders and, and especially when we invest in them the first time, one of the many things I'll tell them is, is, Hey, look, you know, you just raised money. Don't be surprised that you have now automatically become twice as attractive, twice as smart, <laughs> twice as everything. And now everybody wants to talk to you, including, you know, those big companies that wouldn't take your call last week. And I always just say, like, at least for the next year, don't take any of the calls. Don't don't take any of them. Because at the end of the day, you know, you're counting down the days to your next fundraise. You're on the venture treadmill now. But these big potential acquirers, unless you're talking to a, a senior executive with check writing authority, more often than not, you're talking to somebody in the corp dev department who has no authority to write any checks and is really just getting, you know, 
uh, credit for taking a meeting. And you just need to be careful about those those calls. So I guess where I'm going with this is, is like for founders that are in the trenches right now, if you think you're going to either get acquired or be acquired, I think you got to be careful in, in, of your of your time and, and um, you know, be thoughtful of like who you're talking to and what the point of the meeting is. Because there often are reasons to take that call, but they're not the ones you think they are. But anyway, back to this whole Frank and JP Morgan thing. Again, this whole thing just is a mess because both sides are in the wrong here a bit, right? Like Frank shouldn't have cooked the books if that's true. But JP Morgan can't just hold their hands up and say, we got screwed because that's not that's not true either. It just really feels like it's just another another piece of evidence of just how frothy things uh, were in that period and how little due diligence was actually being done. For sure. Transitioning to our, our last uh, item that we'll get in today from a timing standpoint, I think, you know, when you talk about, you know, a different time and how things were a couple of years ago, this last story about Instacart is an interesting one in that Instacart was, you know, fairly close to IPO. Uh, they Their valuation topped out at $39 billion. And then through a series of of cuts, they they cut that internal valuation. They did not go public, by the way. Just clarifying that. And they cut the the internal valuation all the way to uh, to ten billion. Now, I mean, ten billion is still a massive company, and Instacart is still a massive company. But the the question for you is: with this latest report from uh, from a newsletter called The Information, they have raised their internal valuation from ten billion to twelve billion. And for folks who might wonder what that means, uh, that that's the price at which they would issue uh, stock options to existing employees at today. So if, if you're getting your comp is partially in, in dollars and partially in stock, this is potentially a good thing for others who have already been issued stock. It's not as good for the guy getting issued or the gal getting issued stock today, but for folks who may have had options issued to them or actual stock issued to them at 2 billion or 6 billion or 8 billion, then, you know, this is obviously better for them. And it leads us to the same question of, is this a canary in the coal mine um, that says that things are getting better and that and that this um, there's a rising tide that might lift some boats, or um, you know something that you had said pre-show? Is this an example of Instacart trying to do something to shore up the um, the employees that have stock options that may be underwater and try to keep them invested emotionally in the growth of the company? I I think it's the latter. I think that, and I don't think Instacart's alone in this. I think that a lot of companies. Let me, let me let me rephrase. I think that a lot of venture-funded companies have always used equity-based incentives to to kind of make the compensation packages look much larger than they were. You know, hey, sure. you get a hundred k, two hundred k, five hundred k in dollars, but oh, by the way, we're a thirty-eight billion dollar company, so you know, uh, don't look at the shares. Just know that you know we're issuing you options worth a, a, a million dollars or something like that. And when times were really good four or five years ago, that was amazing. You know, people were like, "Oh man, there's so much upside here." But now the the, the opposite has happened. You know, I, I was actually just talking to uh, you know a, a potential recruit coming from Coinbase, and he was like, "Well." I was like, why are we talking? <laughs> you know, a friend of a friend had introduced him to me. I was like, why are we talking? And he's like, well, you know, this is a fun place to work. I, you know, but I took a deal where I took less cash and a lot more equity at the time two years ago because I, I believed that the equity was worth X. 
And now two years later, the valuation is slashed and I'm in no position to double ask for, you know, the, the salary to be brought up as a sort of replacement for that. And, and, it, and he wasn't complaining. Like he knows how he got there. He knows he, you know, he admits, at least in that private call, he admitted, he was like, man, I just wasn't thinking that the market could crash. So he's not like blaming Coinbase or anybody else. But the point is though, is that he's not alone. I've talked to a lot of people that are like, Hey man, I came in at like a hundred million dollar valuation or a billion dollar valuation two, three, four years ago, and now all of a sudden it's worth a quarter of that. And now I'm in a and they're in a pickle too because most of these companies, as you probably know, if you leave before that equity is vested, you have ninety days to decide whether to exercise or not. Yep. And so now you're in this weird, awkward position. Like to use an example so that everybody can follow along. Let's say you took a job at Instacart a year ago when the value was $40 billion. And then let's say today you decide to leave. More often than not, you have 90 days to decide whether to exercise that option and hold on to it or lose it forever. So now you're in a pickle because your cost basis for that stock option, I'm sorry, the strike price for that stock option is at the $40 billion mark. <laughs> and the, you know, the the most recent valuations, a quarter of that. So if you exercise it, it's you're paying on the $40, $40 billion strike price, but you have a cost or a, um, an, you know, actual, anyway, you get where I'm going with this. Everybody's yeah. upside down. And I think that that article about Instacart was worded very interestingly, where most companies, when they talk about a new valuation, they're very clear about where that valuation came from. Like they're very clear. They'll say it's a 409A Right. You know, or they'll say it's based on the latest funding round or whatever. This particular article was worded much more vaguely, which again, I not trying to be a you know gossip rag here, but I don't think that's accidental. I think that's sort of like, eh, we're not gonna exactly say whether it was a 409 or a funding round or whatever. So we're just gonna leave that vague, but we gotta make people feel like the value is kind of going in the other direction. <laughs> and 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 it's it's a tough spot. Like founders yeah. and, and the executives at these companies kind of have to do this because they know what their workforce is worried about right now. Well, I think what's interesting here too is that they. Um, uh, so I I went like we had this on our list uh, for last week, and we didn't get to it. And and so I wondered if a week later there'd be more context. And so before we started recording today, I you know use use the google did not use the bard or the chat gpt but use the google and there was a reuters piece that talked about this internal valuation shift at instacart but there were two key points there one was they cited the information newsletter that originally reported the story and then they noted that instacart had not responded to a comment mm -hmm. to a request for comment from them and so this is this is reuters this is not a Ed's Miles to Go podcast or, you know, something, you know, of a lesser, uh, lesser ilk than a, a major news publication like Reuters. And Instacart didn't reach out and confirm. And so I think to your point, that does make me think that this may not be a 409A sort of situation and that, that this is more art than science, if we, if you will. Yeah, well, that, and that's just it. Is, is it, I mean, if you really think about it, and again, for the attorneys listening, I, I'm speaking vaguely because I'm not an expert on this, but but generally speaking, if you do anything with your valuation publicly or privately, 99.9999999% of the time, you want to cover your butt and make sure that you have safe harbor 
And you're going to speak loudly and from the rooftops about how you got there. You know, if you can show that it was a 409A, you have safe harbor. If you can show that it was the latest funding round, you generally have safe harbor. There's some sort of safe harbor. When you don't say something, that's the, it, that, that, that speaks volumes, especially when you're a multi-billion dollar company. Like nobody should be making these mistakes, but you could say, oh, that first time founder didn't understand that they should explain that this was a 409 or whatever. You can get away with that. But come on, man, $10 billion company marking up to $12 billion and they don't specifically <laughs> say how they got there. Come on. like There's not an yeah. intern running the PR team. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, I would hope not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we might have to Google that though. <laughs> but, but anyway, I think that like this... I think the reason why this is interesting for people to understand, particularly for founders and for for teams, smaller teams right now, the people that you probably could not have afforded two years ago are way back on the market now, even if they're not publicly hunting at the moment. To put it more bluntly, if you are on the lookout for any sort of mid to senior level people at the moment, you know, here in 2023, it's probably worth sending a couple cold emails and starting to have those conversations because if you have a job on Indeed, some senior exec at one of these large funded companies is not going to be the kind of person that goes and applies to that. You've got to be on the hunt for them uh, now. So, so, so the punchy bit here is, is if you're looking for mid to senior level talent right now, start sending cold emails. Uh, I can tell you I'm definitely doing it. Um, and don't be surprised that their public story of being happy with the company won't always match the private story they tell you on Zoom about, yeah. you know, being underwater on the comp and yada, yada, yada. They're going to be much more affordable than you realize now. Yeah. So Yeah, for sure. Uh, for sure. Fun times. Well, we have a couple other things that uh, that are on the back burner that will likely remain there until next week. But I think these were all... Uh, they're all fun topics that, uh, well, fun's probably not the right word. These were all very interesting topics to, to, to work through, you know, without understanding exactly which direction the canaries are pointing in. Um, hard to say whether it's, whether it's fun or not, but, but I think it's, um, I think it's an interesting time and I still see way too much frothiness in companies that are getting funded. So, um, yeah, still, still a little nervous, but, um, but boy, has the, has the amount of companies getting funded, uh, slowed down pretty considerably. Everything slowed down. Yeah, yeah, everything's slowed down now. So, yeah, uh, wild times indeed. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, probably just as wild as the next uh, twelve hours for you. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and, and I and I get to be I get to be home for a whopping like forty hours, and then back on the plane and back out on the road. So it's a uh, it's another one of those uh, road warrior hell hell months. Whatever, man. You love it. You love. I think there are two. There's probably three things you love. There's you know, in order, it's probably your family second, closely followed in second by openly judging every aircraft you can get on and then <laughs> followed even more closely in third place by just making some money. So I, I get it. Let's just own it. Like you love it. You love the 40 hour turnaround. Uh, you know, I mean, since since the forty hour turnaround starts with me being wedged in a middle seat for four and a half hours, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say I agree to disagree. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. That can of, that can of Pringles that United is gonna give me for being a one K for free at coach is is not uh, not my idea of a good start to the to the weekend, but it is uh, a, a good start to getting home to see the family. No, the the best is when you're in the middle seat and then they come down the aisle right before their door closes and they say. 
oh, Mr. Pizza or Mr. Singh, thank you for being 1K. And they say it so loudly, but now you're the idiot in the middle row or middle yep. of the seat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. All right, man. Well, good luck to you today. And I don't know what I can do to help you, but uh, you know how to find me. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I really just need one increased mileage offer on the United Portal for Apple so that you can get that new computer. That's what I need. I, I'm just waiting just for you waiting. to give me the green light. Just, the minute you give me I'm the green waiting. light, I'm in. Just waiting. Waiting, waiting, waiting. All I right, man. It. All right, buddy. Good luck. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>